Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by film and content specialist, Cam Maitland, and podcaster and writer, Emil Nayazi. The first time I made a reference to a 90s teen movie to a person a decade younger than me, and they had never heard of it, it was a deeply jarring experience. Even though this was a 90s movie set in the 70s, and I was not yet a teen when I saw it, Dazed Confused was integral to my youth, and shaped what I thought being a teen looked like and behaved like. I highly doubt that Dazed Confused will ever be remade, nor should it be, but the same can't be said for a number of 90s teen movies that are seeing remakes being released right now, including a gender-swapped She's All That, of course titled He's All That. Now, this speaks to the fact that although certain social sensibilities do change, content warning for today's movies for a, b- a whole bunch of LGBTQ plus slurs, the underlying experience of being a teen and what teens will pay money to watch in movies really hasn't changed. And with that having been said, Emil, how do you feel the teen movies of the 90s decade both reflected and shaped millennials? I think that there was a real underlying um, sense of cruelty of the social hierarchy, which I certainly think contributed to our generational and cultural neuroses. Mm. I think that they were less vulnerable than today's teen movies are. Um, I think that's also reflected in our generational breakdown. No, I think that the teen movies were great. They were kind of superficial in the best way. Like they were real escapist. Um, I think that they represented and could shape what, what was like, um, cool culturally in a way that movies now can't because we just have so much access to monoculture on the internet. But back then, like you really kind of had to pick and choose your artifacts in order to belong to a subculture or have a a kind of a shared language with other people in that subculture for how to, you know, talk about everything from music to fashion to, um, you know, uh, sex and romance. So I think that that films for us back then were like a big part of of that language and and that transaction of belonging. And I think in that way, it it is like it makes a lot of sense to me why not just we revisit it, but, um, you know, Gen Z's and, and people younger kind of seek out that material because that kind of thing doesn't that um, that shortcut doesn't really exist in the same way. One of the years we're also covering uh, this podcast season is 1985, which is the year of, of like both St. Elmo's Fire and Breakfast Club and like all of Rat these pack. really defining moments of yeah. exactly of 80s teens. And watching those movies, there's a lot more aspect of camaraderie of like everybody needing to come together, whereas here it seems more like a versus situation. And um, obviously we're going to be comparing one of the films today to Heather's, which is about the battle between the class groups. And I think that's interesting that now in the 90s, 
90s, you're seeing that battle between them rather than everybody coming together for camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, 80s is very snobs versus slobs in Mm -hmm. a more broad way (laughs) where you like just, I guess it's like that the rich people aren't actually involved at all. They're like caricatures. Um, Though, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird because something like St. Elmo's Fire, they're all weird yuppies. So, I, that, I mean, that one's odd because it's like they're all in their 25s or something. It's a rare movie that is not teens being teens. It's weird. I, yeah, think, I don't like, know. Class consciousness was a big part of the 80s, like Pretty in Pink. Um, this idea mm. that, like, you really did have to be you know, part of the country club or have the right clothes to have access to the in-group. Whereas I think in the 90s, it was much more about this, like, um, it was the heyday, right? It was this great um, economic boom time, the Clinton era. Um, A lot more people were part of the middle class. There was a lot less of that kind of haves versus have not. So then the the division, the social division was about like um, subcultures, like geeks versus freaks and and that kind of thing. And so I think that 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 that's also kind of more interesting in a way to me, but because it obviously is an important through line that the class stuff, but it it also makes for a less um, nuanced and exciting um like thing when when someone crosses over subcultures or when when Mm. someone sits at the other table it's more interesting if it's not so definitively like rich and poor you know Mm. it's also gross to like um aspire to the rich um group in in school right that's like really disgusting like why would you want that yeah and that's i mean that's most of the 90s movies too like clueless and stuff is kind of about like the riches there's always somebody there to deflate it and i think that's also like a gen x these movies are as much gen x as comments on john hughes movies of like yeah it's that but now it's edgy like Mm -hmm. look out you know (laughs) all right well let's get into our first movie today one of the lines that most dates our first movie is email is for geeks and pedophiles but the film itself does have a timeless message teenagers are extremely horny and will pay a large amount of money to watch a quarter of the current young hollywood hotness sexually pursue each other now even the text of the movie is based on has stood the test of time les liaisons dangereuses was written in 1782 and and had already had multiple career-defining film versions of the basic story. But with the 90s successfully plumbing older but enduring texts for plot lines, think Clueless and Emma, She's All That and Pygmalion, Ten Things I Hate About You and Taming of the Shrew, etc., it just made sense to make this sexy story a teen movie and add a chinwag-worthy kiss between Selma Blair and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Ooh, Buffy behaving badly. Let's get to the theater. Cruel Intentions. Does it hold up as much as the original story? Or is it now just a cultural oddity artifact? Cam, what do you think? Oh, I, yeah, I think it's good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. I think it's so weird and unique. And it might be of its time, but it's of its time in a way that's like precious almost. I, and I think it's also worth saying like Cruel Intentions as much as you're like, oh, oh yes, plumbing the classics. It's like he was uh, ripping off a movie from 10 years before, really. Let's not pretend yeah. Dangerous Liaisons wasn't a big deal <laughs> and that, that Ryan Phillippe is an actor acting like John Malkovich and stuff. Cruel Attentions, I think it's fun. I think it's weird. It's a great movie. Um, 
obviously the story, I mean, obviously, the story is uh, two step-siblings, Catherine and Sebastian, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Philippi. Uh, They are, you know, uh, disaffected, bored. Uh, They love playing sexual games with (laughs) each other and everyone around them. So twisted. (laughs) Yeah, uh, he is bored with uh, how easy it is to bed everyone in in Manhattan. Uh, She is trying to defend, she manages, he is a, a rake uh, publicly she manages to pretend to be a good girl while being uh, crass and uh, devious well she, first she wants to destroy a woman there's kind of two threads she wants to destroy cecile played by selma blair who uh, stole her boyfriend uh and then also ryan philippi uh gets a little obsessed with uh, a girl who wrote a article for 17 magazine about how she's going to stay a virgin until she's married uh played by reese witherspoon uh and he decides they make a bet uh that he can't or can or cannot take her virginity so it's kind of these two threads weaving in and out of each other uh while they play devious games and maybe ryan philippi gets too close and actually learns love and grows a conscience we shall see but does he i think that's the one part that i genuinely didn't there's there's many things that i was along the ride for with this being like okay this is just weird and absurd and you know you're they're pushing all kinds of buttons but the ending twist of like is he actually in love with her what is going on like that's the one personality shift that i don't think i totally bought on for but like you want like every girl's dream and the core of this is you want to turn the bad guy good and he's like he's a good guy at heart if i just stick with Mm. it that's the point right yeah that might also be the big shift like i guess i i as a man i am interested to know uh, do you guys is it uh like the thing that i think is probably the hardest to swallow these days is that like r- the whole movie starts with ryan Philippi doing like a weird elaborate revenge porn thing on tara reed and then i think you're supposed to kind of be charmed by him after that like does that still hit right or is that like a little too weird in in 20 20- 22 i think the i i just think that his whole character is like could could not really exist in the same way right now mm. you know obviously hallmarks of of the 90s abet virginity um are all present sure compared to like a say a chuck bass it's a very chuck bassian mm-hmm. kind of character and even that character um for example, in the Gossip Girl reboot, that like the the quote unquote woke reboot um, of 2021 or 2020, I don't even remember. <laughs> Who knows? That character has had to evolve too because they're like, ooh, our, our rakes have to be a little bit more in touch with mm. their understanding of sexuality as a spectrum <laughs> and sure. consent mm. culture yeah. and all of those things. So I don't, I don't think that that ca- I think that character would have to ha- be so updated for like a modern version of this. He definitely would be bisexual. I, I feel yes, like that. That's a thing that yeah. this movie you're like, it's weird that he's not bisexual. Like it's weird that him and Joshua Jackson aren't also like a devious other couple, you know? Yes. <laughs> Which I would pay money to see I that mean, because those two are they, also they kind of have a flirty looking. energy, but it's so yeah, it's, it's meager. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, Roger Cumble actually addressed that. Uh, Cam, you sent me clips, uh, or you sent me the whole thing of the yes. unbelievable Cruel Intentions musical set to the hits of the day, including Genie in a Bottle and No Scrubs. Yeah. And don't worry, they do sing that placebo song as aggressively as they can. <laughs> um, but when they were doing, when uh, he was kind of rewriting it for the stage, that stuff he actually took into consideration yeah. of like, is this too cringe for now? Especially the part where uh, he seduces Selma Blair and starts blackmailing her. And that's for me that I think that was one of the more uncomfortable parts because the power of that Selma Blair performance is she's so wide eyed innocent. I mean, she's playing the Uma Thurman character, right? So it's that same kind of thing. And she's not a bright little bunny. No, she's stupid. Like, I do give him that he tries to make her like a full doofus that you kind <laughs> of have no sympathy for. But yeah, it's it's interesting. And it's interesting how. Uh, I don't think the the musical is a bit hard to immediately watch because it's it's very much the script of the movie. Like there's almost yeah. no changes, but I do like that they lean into like the slurs are still in it because it's almost like isn't it ironic that we used to talk like this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, and I mean I'm also fascinated with both of these movies. I kind of want to talk about that. Like you you could have paid me a million dollars and I never would have pulled the name Roger Cumble <laughs> to say who wrote and directed Cruel Intentions. Like both of these movies are kind of iconic without being like auteur driven, even though yeah, both are totally uh, seem to be auteur driven, which is kind of uh, wild to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange film. It seems to have a lasting appeal though. Emil, do you, do you feel like how does this movie connect across the years? I mean, yes. Okay, if you look at like a show like Bridgerton, right, for like a kind of a current um, a appeal of, of a similar genre, like a corset busting, but uber horny um, <laughs> romance story with some, you know, sexual intrigue. Um, I think this is it's an iconic version of, of that super sexed up teen show, teen mm. movie. I always remember the little cocaine Oh, cross. Cross yeah. that Sarah Michelle yeah. Gellar's character has, like the the reveal that she's yeah. like such a such a bad girl that she carries her <laughs> drugs in a crucifix. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that ever gets old, like the idea wow. of playing with like um, you know, good and bad and how they can both exist in one person and um I do really think it's like kind of gossip girl but like a literary version, you know? Yeah, it also has it, it has the weird thing. Some parts of it are totally not edgy anymore, but some parts of it now seem so edgy that it's like, will we ever get a teen movie as mm -hmm. like purposefully in your face as this? Like, it, it seems like it was making daring choices the with kiss. the amount of drug use. The kiss. Yeah. The kiss. Oh, yeah. and I let me let's get into this because this, like, this, this is my like this is my this is my nineteen nine like remember nineteen ninety nine like. To describe, if there is anyone younger than us listening, uh, like in 1998 was that Ally McBeal kiss, if you guys remember that, was like a huge deal. Mm. And that opened the floodgates for like lesbian kissing yeah. was a, like a ratings grab. And this was kind of a huge one. This is the first MTV same-sex kiss to win, even though, you know, stuff like Kevin Klein and uh, What's-His-Face and In-N-Out were <laughs> voted for MTV Movie Awards. But yeah, this one was it like, and it was a big deal, right? Like, I'm not crazy. Like, enormous. No, it was massive. No, it was enormous. It, I mean, I still think about it because that is still <laughs> a very provocative kiss. Mm, yeah, it was like slow motion. Sarah Michelle Gellar was just like acting, capital yeah. A, 
yeah, we had just never seen anything like that. Our our innocent little minds were blown. <laughs> So with this movie was also R-rated, and they actually talk about how, I think this opened like three or four at the box office, like it wasn't huge, but they think one of the reasons for that is that kids couldn't get in to see this by themselves, and this is not a movie you'd want to sit with your parents, so tons of kids snuck into it. They bought tickets for other movies and snuck in. Had all of those kids paid for tickets, this would have been number one. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, well, I saw it on VHS, obviously. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm a good boy, so I uh, saw it much later. Uh, yeah, I. It's fascinating because yeah, the thought of an R-rated teen movie is almost impossible these days. They would never theatrically like i could see maybe netflix netflix is really getting in that cinemax zone so mm-hmm. i can see them and especially with like euphoria and stuff which is like a show that they're like it's for adults and you're like bullshit yeah. no it's uh, not yeah i kind of i don't know it's very I don't, everything about this movie makes me like it makes me crazy because it's like trying to remember 1999 and where we were but yeah it's i am also like fascinated because i'm super into the fact uh, a movie that blew me away was lethal weapon uh, has a long sequence. There's a lesbian in Lethal Weapon, and a large part of Lethal Weapon is Mel Gibson being disgusted by the thought of a, like being homophobic towards lesbians, including lesbian pornography. So the fact that there's that cultural shift in ten years where we've decided, like, you know, know what? This is actually the heterosexual way to consume homosexuality is like two <laughs> actresses you like kissing. Yeah, is, yeah, it's still, so weird. Still very much in in the like heterosexual gaze, right? It's like four mm-hmm. men, straight men, yeah, to watch two of the biggest young actresses in the world make out. Um, similarly recreated with Nev Campbell and Denise Richards. Um, oh yes. <laughs> another another iconic millennial um, lesbian. That one kiss. had penises in it, though. Also, we were all yeah. shocked by Kevin Bacon's wiener in Wild Things. <laughs> yes, accidental wiener. Uh, accidental. I, I, we I, I, say. I, I didn't know, but I will say at the same time, were you guys? I I don't know if anyone looked it up. I was shocked to find out that Roger Cumble was a straight man, <laughs> like <laughs> that a straight man wrote and directed this film because it does seem like it has a weird queer lean to it and it's the camp i think it's the camp factor and it's them going for this like gauzy european sort of look in a lot of things there's a great quote by the cinematographer that i love where they say um it's shot very classic everything is beautiful elegant and tasteful you won't find any tvs kitchens or other mundane things the moment there was something mundane we thought let's find something else so (laughs) just like the beautiful pretension of no kitchens too mundane these people don't cook for themselves Boring. <laughs> well, Ryan Philippe too was uh, modeling for Prada at the time. So even though they had like a limited budget, like he's costumed by Prada because Prada was like, "Here, have a bunch of clothes if you're going to be, you know, displaying how handsome he looks in in our outfits." Very Richard Gere in uh, American Gigolo. Yeah. I also think that like like what you talk about with that redemption arc of him is odd. I think partially because he gets no comeuppance, but I think why it works is the recent Ryan of it. As much as yes. it's worth saying, mm. he's a terrible bad man now. We we don't like him anymore. But uh, yeah, their chemistry is so real. And also knowing that she like rewrote her part. It's like that early Reese as producer. Uh, I don't know. I Yeah, something about them. They're so charming. And like that pool scene is so sexy. He has the best ass of any <laughs> man on film. Also, I, I don't even know. You very much enjoyed this film, didn't I you, did, I like rewatching it every time. I don't And Actually, I feel like I've never learned about it. <laughs> is that a weird thing? Like, I feel like I always watch it and I'm like, all right. But uh, this was the first time I like dug in, and uh, it was a yeah a rich text. I don't know what. Do you guys like it? I I don't know 
I like it. I, yeah. And I think that like a big part of enjoying these films was, was the, like the specific star power attached to it. Because again, mm-hmm. this is like pre, um, you know, kind of 24 uh, seven TMZ style nature of celebrity that we have now. They didn't have social media. They weren't sharing their lives in the same way. So when you learned about um, couples or there was rumors about like off screen romances, you kind of looked to the movie to like decipher clues as well. And I think that like having a cast this stacked um, around a movie that was so like uh, overtly sexy was kind of impossible to top at that time. Mm. And I feel like it still holds up because we don't do um, sex in the same way. Like it's so sanitized now. And I think I, you know, I've read a couple of, um, of pieces in, in the New Yorker about how, uh, that's even more the case. Like they've kind of taken, except for Netflix, as you mentioned, yeah. taking, yeah, them, yeah. taking that route. It's slowly getting there. The, yeah. the, like the erotic thrillers were mm-hmm. kind of peaking at that time. And like now our sex is really sanitized. And I think that to have something so purposely um, and erotically charged for teens mm-hmm. was like really groundbreaking. And that that holds just because like we are almost like sort of neo-puritanical about sex in our in our movies again. I have to say, for me, the only reason why I still find this, that I'm still able to watch it in this way, is that they're not teenagers. They're people very clearly in their 20s. Sure. And so I feel more comfortable watching them yeah, in this Fair enough. That would be crazy. So like, that would be a yeah, totally different. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, exactly. it does help that yeah. like Selma Blair is clearly older than all of them by like a she's few years. She's five years older yeah. than Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, I, I mean, it's also like me. interesting that you say, because it's like this teen boom in 98, 99 is also fascinating because pretty much none of these people are stars. Sarah Michelle Gellar is the closest. But then there's also this almost Brat Pack energy where, like, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Phillippe knew each other because they were both in soap operas in the early 90s. And, like, Ryan and Reese knew each other. And then you kind of hear that all these people also knew all the Jawbreaker people because they were bumming around L.A. And and this was kind of, like, partially just, like, a let's put on a show because Roger Gumbel knew all of them. So the producer of this was also the producer of I Know What You Did Mm. last summer, which had Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And I think Ryan Phillippe is in that one as well. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't seen that one in a long time. But yeah, so they were all in that movie. So there was actually a whole thing of whether or not they had Jennifer Love Hewitt in this film or not, mm. and if there was a place for her. Because they were like, she's not really innocent enough to do the Selma Blair or the Reese Witherspoon, so what do we do? So they their bone that they threw her was the 17 cover with her face I on mean, it. I love it, yeah. it's But it's very fascinating because all these people suddenly, in, like down to like Sean Patrick Thomas, who had a, like a moment yeah. there too. It's, yeah, it's just like alchemy, this 1999 teen mm-hmm. movie thing to me because we have a whole other episode of meal about kirsten dunst and this is like a weird surprise kirsten dunst is an amazing actress here too but yeah, yeah all these people 10 things i hate about you is this year it's like yeah it's they bizarre. also weren't like huge stars but like mm. for um for that demographic and for what they were doing movies like um I know what you did last summer. Like mm-hmm. there, it just was like such a specific genre uh, yeah. unto itself, and they were such stars to us in that genre that you did. Kind of, it almost was like you anticipated the next movie where so and so would team up with so and so, and you were like, "And who else are we going to see?" And it did create this, um, as you say, like a, a sense of a kind of a brat pack or or this other like wave of of celebrity, like this kind of um, yearbook you know, freshman yeah. class um, mm. of really exciting, attractive people that that were not like 
your JTT, your Teen Beat stars. Like they were <laughs> yes. little edgy. They were yeah. grown ups. You know, like they probably did do drugs. Like there was something very exciting <laughs> about them. Well, one thing when you brought that up, it's also interesting that they're they are making enough of these movies that, for instance, people like Sarah Michelle Gellar's like my agent's like, don't do this, you'll ruin your career. And she's like, I need to do this because mm-hmm. I need to do something totally different. And I feel the same way. Like it's interesting that it doesn't seem that daring that Joshua Jackson plays a uh, like a not even just a gay character but like a pretty openly sexually lascivious gay character because he's just in so much stuff mm-hmm. you know like he's in the skulls he's in urban legend he's in apt people like like he's fine <laughs> he, he can throw off a gay role because he's in so many movies oh then. my god the skulls what? there are so <laughs> many of these movies yes yes, yes. it's yeah. wild and i think it's a thing that like i think that this is a th- like a rich vein for gen z too like i think that they should get into they don't realize what they're missing with it's like true. like disturbing behavior and these mm-hmm. weird movies mm-hmm. that, that you could be enjoying that are just like weird R-rated teen movies. The other thing I think they're missing too that I am waiting for more of a revival of is the soundtrack. The soundtrack yeah. of this sure. is really good and I mean maybe this is just like my nostalgia but I'm like no this is like everything fits really nicely even though it's all pop hits of the day. Nothing feels like it's tacked in because the studio said it had to be in there because they own the record label. Like uh, it's really something special. Did you guys kind of find the same thing where you're like oh I love this song. Oh yeah this is soundtrack heyday like jawbreaker as well these are like these are cds yes um (laughs) that you went and specifically bought Mm -hmm. um because they were so expertly curated like it was the the directors making you a personal playlist and it felt again like um access to a subculture that you might not otherwise have access to because you wouldn't have the money to buy like 10 different cds and and discover the band and Mm. usually it was a great way to break smaller bands like sort of younger indie bands which you know of course now we're like yeah they were huge hits but these were often especially in jawbreaker like these were like Mm -hmm. genuinely cool bands that you might not otherwise discover if you didn't have like an older sibling and so i think like the the soundtrack is unto itself a lost art because like you know now it's just really easy you can keep adding to a show's spotify playlist it doesn't feel special but like you had to go and pay money for that thing um and so i love i love a movie soundtrack (laughs) and when it's done well and introduces like young people to new bands or new sounds like it kind of is like the, uh, like an extension of the director's craft, not to sound like a total wanker. But... No, totally. Yeah, yeah. I also think that it's it's you see the breakdown of the like big studio system in the loss of that soundtrack, mm-hmm. partially because like Warner Brothers or Sony or MGM or whatever usually had a record label that was significant mm-hmm. and they had enough artists that they could cram these with pop songs. And now if you get a teen movie, it's usually like one repeated theme you know it's like oh hey that song is back uh, because they can only afford like two or three unless they like make a deal to essentially say you know harry styles did all the songs of this or like i guess it's always billy eilish and phineas these days but it's like yeah, <laughs> all the songs are by them they're good but it's like oh uh, yeah there used to be such a variety because they could go through their entire stable of artists and like you say they'd be waiting to break an artist yeah they would be like yeah hey here's here's this Oh my god, the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack is like what? I was literally uh, just I mean, the top they, five. They have uh, it's kind of wild that Love Fool is also in this movie, like in a pretty equal way, where it's like it's almost referencing that he put on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack to seduce a girl, which is yeah, like, as you oh. would in 1999, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, 
Amen. Yeah. Well, because I was thinking about Bittersweet Symphony, because, I mean, that song and the ending is so good and it matches up so perfectly. And that's because here is a filmmaking tip for you, kids. Never do this. They matched up the whole thing and the edit to that song, thinking they'd be able to get the song. And, of course, it ended up being a million dollars. So they tried on, like, literally a million dollars for this one song. Uh, that's a large mm. portion of their budget, Oh, yeah. Right? I think they said it was 20% of their budget or something. Just, yeah, it's just for the just use for of the one song. Symphony. But it's so good. Totally. It's so good, <laughs> yeah. and it, it it really does make the movie, and it's so much so iconic. And so I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on this. I just want to get into mm. this because uh, Bittersweet Symphony, of course, is notoriously controversial because it samples part of the uh, the Rolling Stones' "The Last Time," an instrumental version of it. And uh, Alan Klein, who we've talked about being a maniac on the podcast previously, is the manager of the Rolling Stones as well as being the manager of the Beatles. Um, and he allowed the Verve, the band, to use five notes from the song. They could use that in their sample. They instead used seven notes. Um, and as a direct result, instead of the 50% profit share that was agreed upon, um, they ended up losing all of the shares. The Grammy nominations went to Keith Richards and um, and Mick Jagger. Uh, the Verve was not connected with it. They lost millions and millions of dollars because they used two extra notes. Now, Alan Klein died recently, and his son is much more level-minded, and this has now been this has now been reversed. Um, so now the Verve is getting, uh, I believe, almost 100% of the profits from here on in. They will be making everything from Bittersweet Symphony. So kids, they've got some making up to do. <laughs> Please go so use Bittersweet watch, Symphony uh, in your watch stuff. Watch Cruel Intentions. Yeah. Totally. But I was just like, man, what a nightmare. Is that why they just like fell off after that huge yeah. song and I you just bet never you heard from is. them again? I bet you they would have been bigger if they had that money. For sure. And also, like, don't be greedy, though. You know, you got five notes. Use the five notes. Judiciously. (laughs) Touche. Say what you mean. Uh, One thing I wanted to talk about just briefly, because, again, fascinating. And and a thing I was obsessed with, because I don't know about you guys, but I was a big Entertainment Tonight watcher back in 1999 slash 2000. So do you remember, I'm obsessed with the multiple attempts to like capitalize like cruel intentions is technically a franchise but in the messiest way ever oh yeah yeah, yeah. because (laughs) so the first thing was they tried to make a spin-off prequel tv show called manchester prep which starred amy adams in the sarah michelle geller role which is wild enough but if the 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 entertainment tonight of it all is they premiered a a trailer for this show that and part of it involves a uh, catherine essentially uh, you know, it's doing the Selma Blair stuff where she's like harassing a girl, but she harasses a girl on a horse to make her like reposition herself on the saddle until she orgasms. And that trailer was so controversial <laughs> that apparently Rupert Murdoch saw it and the entire series was scrapped on Fox, which on uh, 1999 Fox is hard to believe something was like too hot for Fox. So that that <laughs> stuff, the first three episodes of that show are cobbled together into a really terrible Cruel Intentions 2. There's also a Cruel Intentions 3 three that is uh completely it's one of those ones where it's like this is the martell's like cousin joey <laughs> like it has nothing to do with anything but then again there was a great sounding nbc pilot recently which was implied that reese witherspoon's character was pregnant at the end of the film and this is her son grown up who finds his father ryan Phillippe's diary and mm. that which leads him to Catherine, played once again by sarah michelle geller as an adult and it's like conniving business drama which sounds good but apparently shot a pilot and didn't get picked up but now again apparently there's some sort of tv show coming which is 
It, it seems like just a, a borderline cursed property, partially because I think uh, Roger Cumble is tends to be involved and tends to say this is about you know erotic games, guys. You need to you need to get into it. <laughs> oh, the yeah. sexual mind games of teenagers yeah though also now it's like of a 45 year old woman i guess i no, don't know it's weird, kinda... weird. you know what i think the no. problem is i think they can't get christine baranski back because she's busy yeah, and true. that's what really is tanking I, it every single I mean, time i won't be shocked i i wrote down literally before i watched either of these movies i was like we should probably talk about how white these movies are and then i'm like oh there's yeah. actually like a fascinating racial undertone in cruel intentions that at least <laughs> is like the upper class is racist and they kind of don't do anything with it but uh i was surprised i i had totally blanked on that plot all right well i think that's the perfect moments for us to head into our next film weirdly the darker of the two when we come back we're going to be looking at jawbreaker and that's coming up after the break the sweetest candies are sour as death inside With a tagline like that, who wouldn't want to crack open Jawbreaker and see the inner workings? Featuring some of my personal favorite actors like Carol Kane, Pam Greer, and Judy Greer, and cameos by deep-cut film folk like PJ Souls, where Cruel Intentions is sleek, polished, and sexy, Jawbreaker is shaggy, candy-colored, and sleazy, and is just as enduring and influential as Cruel Intentions will ever be. There's something for everyone. All right, let's get into it. Emil, Jawbreaker, what's this one about? Um, okay, so Jawbreaker is about um, a group of extremely popular girls um, in high school. They kidnap their friend. Um, it's an annual birthday tradition. The, you know, eponymous jawbreaker is kind of a tool used to gag um, the most popular of the group as they are driving to um, to have a milkshake with her. They pop open the trunk and boom, she's dead. And then the ensuing film is about the cover up. It is about um, what lengths will go to to um, fit in and be popular. It's about the ravaging cost of um, the social hierarchy in high school. And it's about um, incredible, as you mentioned, candy colored um, pastel hued outfits that were just um, if clueless was an acid trip that. (laughs) Those are the outfits of Jawbreaker. Well, I love that you bring that up because on previous episodes, we've talked about Mona May, who was integral to the 90s costume scene. Uh, she did Clueless. She did Romy Michelle's High School Reunion. Um, the costume designer here is Vicki Barrett, who was her protege. So you're seeing a lot of that uh, candy-colored fashion and like the very avant-garde 90s fashion reflected here because of that. Well, mm. she nailed it. She nailed it. She did. Yeah. <laughs> she, I actually like these costumes. I'm not going to say more, but I think they should be in the same pantheon for like they're sexy and provocative, but uh, also have clear definitions of why each character is wearing mm-hmm. which. Like it's a proper design of mm-hmm. costume, not just cool clothing all around. Sure. And the music, as I mentioned, like this mm-hmm. is a great, great soundtrack. And this is just a cooler film. Like Cruel Intentions is obviously yeah. teen canon, but Jawbreaker was for if you were slightly 
the cooler person <laughs> yeah, in your group yeah. and yeah. you wanted to like introduce something into like um the sleepover that was going to be um daring and interesting and actually like a film a film as opposed <laughs> as opposed to just like whatever you could get a blockbuster in front of your parents like you kind of had to know where to find this movie um well this was a movie that was made by the home video division of sony it wasn't intended for theatrical release but when they had kind of can't hardly wait and about all these teams movies like we mentioned earlier were like coming out rapid fire they're like okay well what else do we have that we can give a theatrical release to so this kind of ended up kind of bumped up however that being said they had to choose between releasing can't hardly wait and this and kind of betting on which horse they thought was going to do better so they put all their marketing money behind can't hardly wait and then financially they actually lost out because can't hardly wait cost 10 million dollars to make and it only really doubled its budget and like we don't really talk about that movie anymore well, uh, you job might not cost- yeah, i was gonna say i, I- <laughs> I, uh, I do. I was, I was there opening <laughs> totally day, bad. Becky. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that movie like a hundred times. Uh, but sure. go on. We okay, all okay, love all a right. Jenna <laughs> Elfman cameo. Come on. <laughs> I love it. Well, Jawbreaker has made exponentially more mm. money. And, you know, there was the musical version, et cetera. Like, it just has much more pop culture cachet. Like you said, Emil, it's the cool kid movie as opposed to Can't Hardly Wait, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's more the thing that you're going to kind of pass to mm-hmm. people under this the This is also, it's worth saying, I-, I was a little surprised to never read that there had to be stuff cut out of cruel intentions i think it was made very carefully and studio-y whereas this one was an nc-17 film that they had to like slowly slice down to r-rated which again i think proves the weirdness of like the 1999 and what is considered nc-17 is like a guy deep throating a lollipop and stuff like that (laughs) the other thing is this movie wouldn't have been released a few months later because uh columbine Mm. happened in april and this was released in february so it's just those few months you never would this movie wouldn't have seen the light of day no question yeah they didn't like killing kids for a couple years there i think in the same way that that um you know, 9-11 colors a generation's experience into adulthood. Like you can't really underscore how much Columbine shifted our Mm -hmm. experience of adolescence um, and how parents talked about us and treated us and how our kind of um, school experience went based on that incident. Like I I forgot about it, but when you say that, I just go back to like how um, dramatic of a shift in our lives that moment was. Oh yeah. And I think we talk a lot in in film. It's kind of a fascinating moment for a lot of adult films and what like kind of a kind of a starting of shielding adult content. And and a lot of these R rated, especially the horror side teen movies just drop off entirely. Uh, And the big, the one I always point to is the difference between scream two and scream Mm -hmm. Three is essentially Columbine. They they needed to make it a little funnier and lighter, and we're all having a good time, and nobody's seeing any blood, and yeah, and, and I think that you definitely see that here too. Like it's yeah, it is weird that there's nothing nothing happening in Jawbreaker is Columbine. No. It's not even a film that's necessarily that heavy on bullying. It's mostly kind of light barbed comments. You don't see a lot of like beating people up or, or as bad as we know bullying is. Yeah. I also think it's one of the strongest movies I've seen about a budding sociopath, yes. about someone who is figuring out what the boundaries are and what she's able to get away with based on money and looks and the fact that she has she realizes she has this power. And it's a really interesting character study for that Courtney character played by Rose McGowan. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about Fern Mayo. 
Because <laughs> she's sorry. also a budding sociopath, yeah. right? And she, that is true. She yes. arguably gets away with it. Too. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Because, she, she, can we all agree, though, that Fern Mayo <laughs> is the greatest Fern. name for any sort of bland character in any film? It's if so I good. don't think about Fern Mayo at least once a month, I mean, <laughs> color me dead. But, wow. but, to, but to explain, like, so Fern Mayo is the kind of um, the outsider, the the geek, the the overlooked, quiet, mousy girl who observes this popular group from a distance and then she kind of accidentally sees um them um trying to you know plant this uh, cover up this murder and this is her in to the to popular crowd she keeps quiet and they transform her from fern mayo to um violet <laughs> don't fool yourself deep down they know who you are fern i'm violet and the way that power goes to her head and the way she suddenly um, becomes drunk on that social currency and on who she can be as Violet as opposed to who she had to be as Fern Mayo is so fascinating and so interesting. And and I think what what is so great about um, this film is even though it involves dead bodies and it involves this kind of like, yeah, undercurrent of like uh, psychological or, or horror um it's really just a movie about fitting in um, and, and what, and especially the, the drama that, um, that plays out between young women and how we kind of isolate each other and, um, and, and also attack each other and, and the cynicism within those girl groups. Um, and, and the Fern Mayo character is a stand in for all of that. And it's so amazing. And, and, and Judy Greer is just like incredible. Yeah, May I point the listeners to exactly what T-shirt Cameron Maitland chose to wear Judy today? Judy Greer should be the lead, which she is in this one. They get it. She's correct. one of the leads. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, my my shirt that I, now I'm too embarrassed to wear anywhere but work. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating movie, and I think you're right. It's it's interesting that the focus is not it's not necessarily like noirish. It's not really about this crime. It's mm-hmm. much more just about the machinations of high school. And I think that that's partially one thing I, I kind of want to connect to this is it, it's sort of the end of the new queer cinema, which is people like Gus Van Zandt, mm. Todd Haynes, Cheryl Dunye, like So I, and I think it's very much in the tradition of Greg Araki, who is really who broke uh, Rose McGowan. So she was in Doom Generation, and then obviously she's in Scream. She's in Charmed by this point. Uh, but she really talks about, it's interesting reading her talk about this movie, that she was very much into doing like another queer, ironic, kind of like heightened, weird movie that she thought would like freak out the straights. That's <laughs> like why she was attracted to this. And also to know that he originally wrote this for parker posey who essentially was like uh. i d- i can't do high school anymore she was like i am too old officially no more no more high school for parker um but yeah i think that there is that kind of john watersy mm. feel but the the, the darkness Definitely. of greg Araki and that like la is a nightmare teenager wasteland where people mm-hmm. are just going feral and that's part of the business like none of the adults particularly seem phased which i also think comes from daniel waters and heathers like i, I do think that there is that influence of like adults are just like mm. <laughs> except for pam Creer, who's who's kind of invested yeah I mean, I always bring come back to River's Edge with that. One of the reasons River, River's Edge works the way it does is because the parents are so checked out and so not involved. And that's, I think, really, it's a component that makes a good horror, right? It's like, this is why the kids are running rampant and why they're acting out, because the, the parents aren't okay. That's why. True. 
Yeah. I do want to get into Rose McGowan just for a second, because I think she's really good in this. And she was also at a really interesting place pop culturally as well. Like now, unfortunately, after the Weinstein thing, like there's a whole other thing that we talk about her for. But like, where was she kind of at in 99? She was the the interesting, the kind of opposite side of the teen starlet coin, right? She was the one, the, the goth girl, the Alterna girl. She was... <laughs> Um, you know, known for her provocations on red carpets that, um, you know, that that incredible chain dress with her whole bum hanging out, um, which was just like burned into my memory. Um, <laughs> she was, like, you know, in the same way that Jawbreaker is like the cool kids um, teen movie, you know, Rose McGowan was the cool kids um, teen star. She was like someone that you could... Um, aspire towards her dialogue was always like really snappy and edgy she always seemed to know a little bit more than everyone else in the room in in her roles you know Mm. she's like uh that that teen that is precocious without um wanting to hang with the grown-ups you know like she's she obviously knows as much as the adults do but she uses it to manipulate and control her peers as opposed to moving upwards she controls downwards um and i think there was something like you know, not to sound kind of cliche, but like rock and roll and mm. and just exciting about uh, about her. And you knew her choices were they've always felt very deliberate. Like she she never felt like someone like a Sarah Michelle Geller or a Jennifer Love Hewitt, who, you know, a lot of their roles felt forced upon them by an agent or like a very monetary decision. And it always felt like Rose McGowan was very deliberate about her roles because they were part of this body of work that was um like p- part of a kind of an outsider oeuvre of of film mm. yeah she also is like a bit more of a character actor like you can't really you can't really make her the regular you know yeah. every woman she would never fit into that just because I, I don't know if it's baggage or i think she's capable of acting like that but it's like you would never cast her as that. So so it's interesting because she was so popular, but this is a rare lead role for her, you know? Like mm-hmm. that's it's not not something she usually got outside of indies and, and weird movies. I also wanted to go back to like a, another kind of like explain to different generations thing that you were talking about, Emil. Like without the internet, she's also a part of this like which this movie is too. This like retro kitsch wave, mm-hmm. which it's hard to describe that, but like that was cool because it was inaccessible at the time. Yeah. Like if you wanted to dress retro, you had to get like either handmade clothes or like the actual vintage stuff before vintage was cool and like all that tiki bar like Dita Von Teese LA stuff was cool and she was kind of like the queen of it exactly and and it's interesting like um we're talking a lot about Rose McGowan and and Judy Greer but probably one of the most recognizable faces in the film is Rebecca Gayhart, who is the Mm. Noxzema girl. Even if you didn't know her name, she was on on your commercials every night. She was the face of Noxzema, which no one uses anymore because it's basically like menthol. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do remember that smell walking to my ass place. (laughs) I I was like, I could be a Noxzema girl. Um, but, But Rebecca Gayhart was like, 
the this like epitome of um the girl next door she's the you know she has that face that you want she's selling this product because she is so relatable um and and to see rose mcgowan and just eclipse her completely in this film like you act you kind of forget rebecca gayhart's there and she's so one-dimensional and i i personally don't consider her to be um even even in the kind of mediocre to great realm of actresses yeah. but it's interesting how much um over time she's just completely forgotten about as far as like the conversation around jawbreaker yeah it's interesting too because she kind of had her sarah michelle geller moment the year before in urban legend where she is but it's like a twist because again yeah she's the noxima girl she's the good girl so spoiler alert <laughs> twist she's the bad girl uh but then they even unfortunately have a reveal in urban legend 2 which did not do well that she's like still around and there's going to be like a league of bad urban legends at the end of it <laughs> but uh it's uh yeah it, she's an interesting woman and of course it, like it's interesting because i think she's now kind of forgiven for it but her career was totally derailed because she ran over a child yeah um I think mm. she's been quite open about how th that, like, as it would, destroyed her life personally because yeah. she killed a child. Uh, so, yeah, I think she's kind of back. And it's interesting to see her just as a person who's, you know, the public is willing to talk about and to again. But, yeah, she this was kind of her era. Uh, so, yeah, I totally forgot she was a Noxima girl, though. Now it's burnt in my mind. Oh, I, I only think about her as the Noxima girl <laughs> or as the person who killed that child. Um, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, but, she, yeah. but also married to Eric Dane, who is um, yeah. Mick Steamy from yes. Grey's Anatomy. So. And they've been married forever, kind of, yeah. too, haven't they? Yeah. yeah, like before he was famous, maybe even. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she now just seems to be a, a mom trying to get by. Oh, my like God. I was just going to say, she's yeah. in, in every, like, um kind of like Gwyneth Paltrow style Instagram um, or mm. Kate Hudson is a great example. Uh, Instagram celebrity. If you yeah. check, mm. there's always a double tap from Rebecca Gayhart or she's in the no. comments like, Oh, heart, heart, heart. Um, so that's her, that's kind of her, her playing field these days. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say that there, there was a weird, um, you could see that, uh, Oh gosh, I can't even remember his name. Uh, the, uh, American horror story guy. What's that guy's name? Uh, Ryan Murphy. Yeah, Ryan Murphy. He loves Jawbreaker, obviously, because both uh, Rose McGowan and obviously. Rebecca Gayhart appeared on Nip Tuck as like different doctors. That show, which also Gen Z should take up because it was insane and a clearinghouse of these people. Ryan Murphy also has a whole uh, like him in the comparison between Darren Stein is so obvious for me because Darren Stein is here bringing back all of his favorites, right? Mm. Like you have almost the entire cast of Carrie brought back here with the exception of like John Travolta and Sissy Spacek. You got PJ Souls, you got William Catt. You know, he's filling all these roles. I mean, Pam Greer is in this movie and God, I love when she shows up, but he's doing the same thing that um, Ryan Murphy does is he brings back these actors that he's always loved watching and gives them these roles. I mean, Carol Kane is in this in like a super tiny yeah. role. You know, I was waiting. For, I mean, Swoozie Kurtz is in the other movie. So obviously she was busy and couldn't do this <laughs> one. But it's uh, it, it's so interesting to me, like that this would kind of continue to be a pattern of these young people and these filmmakers being like, I love these older actresses specifically. Let's bring them in and give them work help them out with their style i also card. think it's knowing that they'll get it right like you you yeah. know uh that all of these people get what you're trying to do mm -hmm. and will bring you some level of uh something it's and it's also to be said that like a movie could be sold on that you could be like you know pam Greer's in this uh, she yeah. was just in jackie brown whereas now nowadays you need like an oscar winner to sell 
single any single thing uh it's just not yeah i don't know it's it's very fascinating and i i will say i, I was just like how's rebecca gayhart doing and i did notice that she is in uh she's said to be in a reboot of urban legend so oh. one of her iconic roles is back baby there we go uh, everything <laughs> is new as old yes <laughs> i love la uh ephemera and stories speaking of urgent urban legends and things and uh this gave me the treat of going down the angeline billboard thing are you guys familiar yeah, who yeah sure is? yeah Up- okay okay i didn't TV know about series this. becky yeah, sure. uh, that's yeah, what I, yeah. that's what i saw it was played by emmy mm. rossum so w- watching the the scene where um the the violette character is now like on her hot pink cadillac in like the full bitch pink like pvc skin tight uniform she's doing angelique billboards yeah. and it looks cool so you don't even know or angeline billboards it looks cool you don't actually know need to know who angeline is but anyone from la would know exactly what she's doing uh emil do you want to fill us in who angeline was angeline was like a this kind of classic Hollywood character of this woman who'd had all these surgeries to basically look like Barbie. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had taken out these billboards in, across Los Angeles, um, just selling herself, really. Like, I don't, not literally, but creating a, building a mystique around Angeline. And if uh, it was kind of um, ever present in the backdrop of, of California, if you were driving around LA, you would see an Angeline billboard. Yeah. Um, and she just, I think it's almost like, few decades too short because if she was doing that now she would be a worldwide phenomenon and everyone Mm -hmm. would know her because of the internet but it like it was a very specific LA thing but me in Vancouver as a you know greedy little pop culture consumer (laughs) um, knew knew of her just because it was such a part of this specific lore of um of that era of celebrity or this is pre-reality stars, right? So she was like kind mm. of the the prototypical of reality star because she didn't yeah. she was she was just famous for being famous and she was famous because she took out all these billboards of herself. There's actually a discussion that Paris Hilton took a lot of the yeah, look sure. and the voice and everything from that specific character, seeing how well it worked for her to get it. Yeah. And there's sense. good uh, if you go through Hollywood history, there's good people. I can't can't remember what Starlet. Somebody walked down the street with an ocelot all the time. She had like a giant jungle <laughs> cat. You know, people would throw stuff out of planes and, and it's worth saying angeline also had the, the the pink corvette that she would drive around and she would also give you a headshot signed if you just approached her on the street which is smart she sold her own merch out of her trunk yeah. which i love she had her own magazine that she printed and you could buy it for 50 bucks an issue yeah. I, I mean that's and i mean yeah all right these there. people have kind of migrated to the internet but it used to be like i mean we live in toronto and there was plenty of toronto uh people like Angeline that now have kind of yep. disappeared too. Yeah. Yeah. Got to bring no. that type of star back, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'll go and do something. I don't Let's know. Let's get a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Just a mysterious one. This is a thing though YouTubers do. Like LA, LA has a billboard culture mm-hmm. that we don't really have in Canada. I mean, the States in general billboards, but like LA billboards are much more of a thing and YouTubers actually use them on a regular sure. basis in LA. Like you're not something unless you have a billboard. And I remember seeing one on the gardener here in toronto for a youtuber and i was like do people do that like do children watch things based on what they see on billboards but apparently it's a prestige thing to be a youtuber and have your own billboard all it is is money baby anyone can get a billboard <laughs> but, but i want to <laughs> encourage people one thing I, I just wanted to ask about to you both of you i i'm very interested that this film they also speak in like a very weird language that is like almost clueless 
almost not it's like just kind of an unusual way and it seems like it was a big 90s thing of like essentially making up teen vernacular i killed liz i killed the teen dream deal with it and i i don't have any point really but i'm just like what up with that do do we like that should that come back just like adults faking teen language i i think if you think about like the the ways in which adults had had to like specifically seek out access to cool mm. children was like not the way it is now <laughs> where you can just like be on yeah. TikTok for an hour and now you speak an entirely different language <laughs> um you know you really had to know you had to have ins and so mm. i think but but i think the slang the idea of us speaking in a totally different way from our our adults um and mm. our our seniors was like this obsession i mean as it always is with with older generations sure. but i think at that time like our kind of like our boomer parents really had no idea what we were saying and there there was this obsession with how we spoke and what we were saying and what we were talking about and and um that like it was kind of pre just the advent of like text shorthand so mm. like it you know it, it did roll into that so i think i think like the obsession with with teen speak um really seemed to peak in in that like late 90s okay. early 2000s don't you like this yeah um, yeah oh absolutely I agree. yeah and and every movie kind of had you can find a lot of it and then they're almost making fun of it in mean girls with fetch where it's like mm -hmm. no that doesn't exist like the mean girls don't speak they speak in regular language yeah. But bringing up Mean Girls is an interesting thing, though, because that's the sanitization we're talking sure. about, because Heather's is incredibly dark. This like the the dead body in the trunk with like the the blue, the eyes all grayed out and the actual jawbreaker yeah. lodged in her throat and like the, the is pretty grotesque and the, the movie's yeah. pretty grotesque. And then Mean Girls, like the most shocking moment of it is when uh, Regina George gets hit, by, gets hit by the car, but she's fine. Yeah. And so and the Mean Girls aren't even that mean in that movie. So like you can kind of draw the through line of that, yeah. but also see it as a declining arch of actual mean. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I, I don't. In a weird defense of Mean Girls, it's based on a sociological text about how yes. how girls are mean to each other in school. So I think it's more like she applied a Heather's lens to it. But yeah, this movie, I think I forgot that this movie is a bit crueler than Heather's because it really goes there with like rape stuff, which is a bit kind of yeah. wild. Uh, and and yeah, but. I don't know. The teen speak. The teen speaks fascinating because I guess I mean Euphoria kind of has a, a teen language of its own, but it also is so obsessed with like therapy language and adult stuff that yeah. it kind of I don't know. I also think it maybe depends on how close the person is to it. Like Darren Stein is twenty five when he did mm. this, you know, and obviously he's hanging out with other young people throughout LA, and LA of course had like its own language unto itself that you're also getting from movies like Clueless, yeah. right? Like that sort of um, that sort of uh, young Southern Californian. Mm -hmm language right and that that then kind of permeated the rest of north american culture and i guess there's a timelessness to it I don't, mm -hmm. if you make yeah. up a language i don't know i don't know <laughs> i don't know i love modern slang my small person is eight and uh, we were going to get coffee and donuts and as we're walking along he's like we be copping and i was like i'm sorry we're what and he's like we be copping and coffee and donuts i was like oh we be copping mm. cop police officer no, i, I thought see. you Thank meant you. you're, you're so, copping like you were copping the donuts getting them 
No, no, we are copying as in we are going to go do something that police officers oh, do, which okay. I thought was very funny uh, and very you, weird. You've got to educate him about the carceral state, Becky. Get him out of that. <laughs> I know. Too much, too uh, much copaganda. <laughs> I love it. All right, on that note, I'm ending this episode. So Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for conceiving this episode and also suggesting our fantastic guest today. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you. And, uh, and I will say that look up behind the scenes photos of Jawbreaker with Darren Stein because he's a great late 90s twink. Uh, just lo- loving life on the set of uh, Jawbreaker. <laughs> so many odd-shaped sunglasses. Yes, so many w- wonderful, wonderful odd-shaped sunglasses. And haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, Neil, thank you so much for joining us for the first time. Hopefully not the last. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I cannot wait oh, to look up can... those pictures of Darren Stein. <laughs> I believe there's a Vice oral history that I think has has a lot of great ones. That sounds correct. Can you please tell people how they can hear more of your work and follow you? Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Emil, A-M-I-L, and you can listen to Pop Chat every Wednesday wherever you listen to your podcasts. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to have a blast from the past. Literally a blast from the past. Because we're looking at that movie as well as The Mummy. And that's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Cameron Maitland and Emil Niazi as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.